Shamai, and welcome back to the podcast. If you want to get access to all of the podcasts before anybody else, so this episode you're about to listen to was released to my patrons before you are listening to it now. They have already listened to this. Um, sometimes the in, the the podcasts get released to them a day or so early, sometimes weeks in advance. It depends. My H Hour patrons also get a chance to have... Uh, uh, private Q&A sessions with uh, some of the guests and also a monthly Zoom uh, monthly Zoom get together with myself and all the other patrons access to an exclusive Discord community and also invites and to events uh, different kinds of events around the country and free stuff they get free they get free shit they get free shit every month so yeah H Hour patrons you can join them patreon.com forward slash hk podcasts sponsoring the podcast today are combat cigars combat cigars are the first british military veteran-owned cigar company in existence combat cigars is founded by three ex-military folk i am one of them i'm really glad to be part of combat cigars it's very exciting it's very cool it it is that's basically the main reason. It's cool. It's alley. There are three main cigar blends. There is a four, fourth blend on the way. Colombian cigar blends that we get from our partner farm in Colombia. A, a family that has been doing, uh, do, doing cigars, rolling cigars for 200 years. Yes. And we have got a, a, a relationship with them where they roll cigars exclusively for combat cigars. So the three blends you've got in stock now, you can't get them anywhere else. You can't get them anywhere else. You can only get through Combat Cigars. They are called The Last Post, um, The Victory, and The Oath of Allegiance. They are robusto-sized cigars, and they are good for, basically, if you're a cigar connoisseur, or if you're new to cigar smoking, you will enjoy these cigars. We've got a fourth blend on the way. It's top secret at the moment. It's also a different size. However, get your cigars from us. When you're thinking about Oh, I should get a cigar for that event. That'd be good to get a cigar for that event. Or what if my platoon got all cigars? What if my unit got cigars? Or as a leaving do or a promotion or whatever? Think Combat Cigars. CombatCigars.co.uk Also sponsoring the podcast today with the Development Society. If you want to surround yourself with like-minded people who enjoy fizz care about others and want to improve themselves on a daily basis you need to surround yourself immerse yourself in the development society community they are a community with a healthy amount of stoicism they are a community of like-minded dudes who want the best for each other devsoc for short d-e-v-s-o-c DevSoc can offer you insanely cool products to weekly Zoom Zoga. Uh, I was going to say Zoga. Weekly Zoom yoga sessions. There's tons to get involved with the DevSoc. There's tons to benefit from. The best way to keep up to date with them is to sign up to their Daily Waves newsletter, the infamous Daily Waves newsletter, I should say, on their website. Their website is devsoc.shop, D E V S O C.shop. Get on there, sign up to the Daily Waves newsletter. Signing up means just chuck your flipping email address in, right? And then you'll benefit from that. And also take a look at their shop. Those cool products they talk about, they've got exclusive products that are time-limited in availability. It's pretty cool the way they do things. Like, you can't always get everything all of the time. You need to keep an eye out from when certain things are available. And they do that because stuff's in such demand that they have to control the way they're chucking it out. From John Deere style caps to Ali 
Ali uh, mugs. I think they're going to mug me out of bamboo. It's pretty trendy. I've got one coming for the podcast. Anyway, take a look. Have a look for yourself. Devsock.shop. Make sure you sign up to their Daily Waves newsletter. Also sponsoring the podcast today with the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group provide advanced systems for protection and management of territories, borders, assets, and people for a global customer base. The Aardvark solution incorporates risk management, satellite, and UAV imagery for situational awareness, safe systems for the identification and destruction of landmines and the remnants of war, and standoff explosive explosive. Do you know what? I do that all the time. And standoff explosive detection technologies. They operate in the humanitarian, critical defence, security and commercial sectors in the Middle East, Africa, Asia, Europe and the Americas and the Aardvark system is widely regarded as the most effective landmine clearance system in the world. Following the relatively recent acquisition of Aardvark in August 2017, the new management has sought to develop and expand the company's offerings with systems and solutions that complement the company's highly regarded status. One such enhancement is the addition of advanced drone surveillance technologies, UAV surveillance technologies, providing the company with market-leading situational awareness for mine clearing, counterterrorism, border security and asset protection operations. They also have a shop on the website. So the website is aardvark.group. They also have a shop where if you work in hostile environments, if you work in post-conflict zones, they've got kit and equipment in the shop that you will find beneficial to you, uh, such as trauma packs, for example. So uh, go to the shop, aardvark.group, hit the shop, and when you go to checkout for whatever you're going to get from them, um, use the discount code HHOUR and you will get money off. They provided a discount code exclusively for HR listeners, HHOUR. Chuck that in and you will get a discount. Thank you, Aardvark. That website is aardvark.group. On social media, just look for the Aardvark group. Finally, sponsoring the podcast today are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation formed in 2009 in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whittaker, who was sadly killed serving on operations in Afghanistan with the Parachute Regiment in 2008. Rugby for Heroes organised fundraising events to raise money for military charities. They've raised over £114,000 since they started, and they have grown their scope of events to go to include not just the Rugby for Heroes Festival, the rugby festival that they were founded on, but also beer and gin festivals and supper clubs. And since the lockdown and all the pandemic is now starting to get normal, back to normal, people can do normal things. Rugby for Heroes have already got themselves underway, underway with organising events. They have got, uh, oh, they've recently held the Rugby for Heroes Restart Festival, which raised, I think it was about £4,500 for charity. Brilliant event. So you need to keep an eye on their website and on their social media for future events. Make sure you get along. I will be going to it, guaranteed. I've been to, since I found out about Rugby Heroes, I've been to every single event they've held. And I intend to keep up that pattern of behaviour. Their website is rugbyforheroes.org and on social media, they are at rugby number four heroes, at rugby number four heroes. Thank you to Mike and everybody at R4H. My guest today is Richard Sharp. Sharpie is a former officer with the Royal Marines. He is a former CEO of React Disaster Response and the Ops Director of Help for Heroes. He is the co-founder of Challenger Operations and he's a good guy. He's a good friend. This is a H-Hour podcast. You're going to enjoy it. My guest today is Richard Sharp.
Ultra back in the studio after three years. 2018 was the first time you came, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. End you of 2018. Were, you were my first podcast when I started at my last job. So you're, book, you're bookending my charity career. I, I popped a cherry. You did. <laughs> <laughs> it was a real baptism of fire, that one. <laughs> yeah, 2018, that was it. 2018, then you flipping, you and Paul Godonis and a bunch of other people peer pressured me to join in uh, what is now React Disaster Response. Then went to Mozambique. <laughs> joined the, joined the Bay great. swimming team. <laughs> <laughs> which was great, which was great. Um, and... Uh, and, uh, and here we are now. Right, question for you. Mm. I've, so I've said, I said it previously, I know when, uh, when you were there as the CEO of the charity, um, I would never want that job. Like the hardest job in the world mm. ever. Right. What's harder though? Being the CEO of a charity or commanding a company of men in Afghanistan? Being the CEO of a charity. You didn't even think about that, idea. hundred percent. Now, you can ask me that a hundred times, it'll be the same answer. Yeah. What's the challenge about it compared to being like a CEO of a of a of a, of a profit making organization? When you're so when you're commanding men in Afghanistan or men and women in Afghanistan, when you're a professional sports person, it's it's quite simple in a way because you you're dealing with people that are super driven, super motivated. All the resources you need are predominantly always there. You've just got to be brilliant at your basics and deliver brilliance every single day. But you're surrounded by brilliant people. When you're the CEO of a profit-making company, which you know I am again now, you're selling something. You, you know you have value to give to somebody at a price, and the price is right or wrong. But it's very transactional. And it's e it's much easier. I have this thing that you probably want. It's going to cost you this much. Is it worth that to you? Yeah, cool. Well, let's do the let's do the work. In the charity sector, you're 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 sort of you're trying to sell goodwill, or you're trying to get them to put a price on their goodwill or their desire to act. You're trying to constantly compel people to give money for no tangible outcome for themselves, apart from the fact that they want to see good done in the world. You're also, as the CEO, governed by, you're not really the boss. No, you, you are entitled, but you have a board of trustees, you have public opinion, you have thousands of really passionately aligned volunteers that all have their own idea on what should and shouldn't be done. You've got staff. You know, it's it's a very different exercise leading a charity, um, and the press is always there, constantly. You know, the 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 trust for charities was right down from when I was back at Help for Heroes, even. Um, but the the biggest thing is trying to constantly raise money without giving anyone anything in return, apart from the outcomes that we deliver somewhere else in the world. Yeah, and that, it's that that makes me that. Makes you think, you know, is this, there's no job I, I wouldn't want less kind of thing. <laughs> wouldn't want more, you know. Yeah. Is that is because you, it's the it's the it's the funding. It's like every single day, every single day you're fighting to get the money to be able to do what you need to do. Yeah. Um, and we know oh we're doing great God. work. You know, I I used to get a ringside seat to watch the, the work you lot were doing in Mozambique or what we did in COVID. You know, we did some incredible stuff in COVID. Oh, we raised some money for that, but. Um, you know, for three and a half, four years, I was waking up every night, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., freaking out about money. We were so close to going bust all the time. And I have slept like a baby for the last seven months because I'm selling a product now, you know, and people buy it, it's fine, you know. Um, and yeah, three, four years of just constantly worried about money and where to get it from next. And um, Was it that bad? So through, like, literally, waking in the middle of the night? I, I didn't sleep for yeah, three and a half, four years. I was awake every single night. 
about some kind of existential problem that we were going to have to navigate react through this like little we just lived with a chin didn't we like we 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 knew we had something to offer and we just had to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until everyone else saw it and the money would come which has now happened just in time for me to leave (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 um do you find it do you, do you find it quite um quite a lot of pressure on yourself anyway being continue to be your own boss and not or not being an employee someone I don't think I could have gone back to working for someone again um you know I I think um certainly in the early days we had a lot of creative freedom to try and put it where we needed to put it and work with a very small tight knit team to get it there um that got harder as we got bigger and the ball got more involved and government as well. You know, it got, it got much harder to be creative. But um, the thought of going back now to be an ops director somewhere or, you know, anything but running my own shit now and and deciding my own destiny, I, I want to I control my own life. Um, I want to build my version of an extraordinary life, not what everyone else says it should be. You know, I want to, I want to create what I think an extraordinary life should be for me. The work I want to do, where I want to do it, when I don't want to work, you know, when I want to do, I've got a lot of hobbies, you know, I want to make sure I'm working with someone that understands that. So my business partner's an ex-bootnet. He's like another high-octane adventure guy. And we're going to do this our way. Um, and we're not motivated by a big exit in five, ten years' time. We just want to have a great time doing what we're doing and set ourselves up financially. But it's more important about the way we're going to do it and who we're going to do it with. Cool shit with cool people is the number one rule. I think it's been quite an extraordinary life so far already, Richard. Time, <laughs> time to chill out. Is it time to chill you out? You get old, mate. <laughs> you get old when you let yourself get old, don't you? Uh, yeah, um, I mean, what, I'm, th- I'm only 38 now, mate. I've got. Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah, I know. I look old, but I'm 38. I'm 40 on Saturday. Are you? Yeah, on yeah. Saturday coming, yeah. Oh, happy birthday for Saturday, mate. I think um, while my body's still working, you know, while I've still <coughs> got the ability to do stuff, I want to keep. Try new things, you know. I'm going to get my free fall license in January because um, I've never done that, you know. So I want to be a bit more like you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have got to keep active, and yeah, it's, it's one thing I, I'm realizing as well. But you, you've got to, uh, well, mentally active, physically active. But you do. Uh, I, you got to try and temper it. I'm constantly injured at the minute. I, mm. I literally uh, this morning I realized why. It's because I'm smashing myself. I'm doing. I'm not doing, you know, spin class five days a week. I'm doing spin class one. Well, I'm going to spin class right yeah. once a week, but I'm also going boxing. I'm yeah. playing rugby, you know, and it's like, and I haven't done this stuff for four or five years to the level I'm doing it now. Yeah. And then I, I've literally I've walked out there this morning having a brew. I thought that's why you're constantly injured because you're fucking hammering yourself. Yeah. You're not 23 <laughs> anymore. <laughs> like, you know, you just launch yourself way back into it without even giving yourself sort of a, a, a period of, right, let's ease myself in. No, boxing twice a week, rugby, flipping, everything yeah. else is caning it, mate. You started jiu jitsu, haven't you? I've just started jiu jitsu, yeah. Because when I was in Dubai this summer, I was out there for three months. I was like starting to get the itch to play rugby again. I was like, I'm still in good shape. You know, I could go and go, I could still show these boys the way around. I was doing a box jump and my shin swelled up. <laughs> I was like, maybe, maybe rugby is done for me. Maybe my years of that is done. But I needed something. I needed that like confrontation. I need that like, like face to face confrontation with someone. And I boxed a lot, but I don't want to keep getting like concussive injuries on the head. You know, you know, seen a lot of rugby players getting uh, sort of brain injuries later on in life now. So, I think jiu-jitsu is the thing, and I, I'm in love with it already. I've only been three times. Mega. I love it. It's yeah. mega, isn't it? It is mega. Yeah, oh, I'm wait. going back tonight. Uh, wait, wait, where are you training? Uh, Ippon in Bournemouth. 
Okay. Uh, he's an ex. Uh, he was on the Ultimate Fighter TV program way back when. He's oh. a pro MMA guy, lovely guy. But he's a jiu-jitsu guy. What's his name? Uh, Jeff Lawson. Jeff okay. Ippon Lawson. Yeah, I wish I had the time dedicated to it. And I'm, I'm, do you know what annoys me? Why don't Why don't more sports clubs, classes, jiu-jitsu, boxing, flipping, whatever you name it, do morning classes? All right. Well, this guy does. He does a six thirty. Oh, yeah. That's the only reason I'm not getting into it right. because it's where where I live in Chelmsford. Yeah. There's nowhere. To, oh, there's one class on a Friday morning at six six a.m. or six thirty or something. Yeah. But the rest of the week there isn't. Yeah, oh, yeah. The thing is with jiu-jitsu, you know, you've got to. You well, you end up wanting to throw yourself at it. Yeah. Constantly because it's brain work. Yeah, it's amazing. And I came out of the first couple of sessions like like two hours or an hour. I was like, I haven't thought about anything else apart from not getting strangled for an hour. <laughs> It's really good, isn't it? Yeah. Like it's mindful. That aggressive yoga, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we need that edge to it, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. It is good. It is good. Um where you're training, do they let the do they let the Joe bags do um leg locks and stuff? <laughs> I haven't been I haven't been there long enough to find Maybe out not. yet. I'm still in like the white belt class, so it's all like nice and safe and insulated from the, the, the big mean guys. Yeah. <clears throat> but Jiu-jitsu's big with bootnecks, isn't it? Really why, big. Why is that? Reorg, well, I don't know. Like, but Reorg has got massive. Um, and it's got very... But, but I think it was getting big before. I think it just... There was one of the PTIs. I think it's Sam Sheriff who set up Reorg. He really drove BJJ in the core. And then lots of the core sort of legends got involved and it just it just spread. But yeah, the bootnecks love it. Love it. Yeah, there was a there was a class... A class. It was, it was good on... 16 Brigade but it was being run by a 7 RHA guy I can't remember so no one went <laughs> yeah correct <no. laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, yeah it probably, you're right actually it probably is Rio that's driven that isn't it and it, and uh, Tom Hardy's Tom Hardy's in it Mark Ormerod obviously he's really high profile and he's one of the Rio ambassadors he's raised about a million quid for them in this last year doing like he swam 5k he's only got one arm yeah. He's swimming faster than I can. I can't swim for I've got two arms, mate, two legs. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. Um, did, oh, he's just had an award, isn't he? Yeah, Pride of Britain Award, I think. Yeah. yeah, he's an amazing geezer, isn't he? Amazing. I've not, well, I'm trying to get on the podcast. I say trying. It's just meaning to sort it out and get it ready. Yeah. It's not happened yet. Not happened yet. Uh, I need to get down there, really. Mm. Yeah. What's the new company called? Uh, Challenger. Challenger Operations. Um, why'd, you, why'd you call it that? <laughs> When, when I'll be t- totally honest, but Robert, tank regiment background. Yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm really <laughs> passionate about armor fighting vehicles. <laughs> I was all about the armor. Yeah. Um, when Rob and I were, Rob and I had been shaping it for about 18 months. I was obviously still the CEO at React, and we were pretty busy all that last year in COVID, and we're trying to trying to get the branding and things done because I was starting to plan an exit a little while out because I knew I couldn't I couldn't sustain the pace that I was putting myself through at React. Um, but it took about 18 months and when it came to like branding it the uh, we had a little agency working for his mate of mine and he kept sending us all ideas and I was like yeah mate whatever like that sounds cool and that was that was it they they sent us challenger and the logo and I'm like yeah cool that'll do that will just look if we don't like it later we'll change it but actually now we, we really like it like, we love it it just fits with what we're trying to build and the kind of people we want to work with um and the way we want to do our business challenger just works yeah, you can go down a rabbit hole of branding, can't you? Yeah. You can either go, you, you, you basically either need to choose something, go, yeah, happy with that. Or you make the mistake, I think, of going too much in depth mm. about how people will perceive this, that, the other part of the branding. Yeah. Rather than no, with, with combat cigars. 
Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, it, we've got a fourth cigar coming in. Um, and de- deciding the name of that cigar, mate, honestly, each one of us, the three of us behind the company, each one of us has thrown our, our teddies at the pram multiple times. None of us will admit that, though. Yeah. I've been in now, thrown our teddies at the pram multiple times. <laughs> and, and then, we, you know, we've, we've, we've chosen the, the name of this cigar now, Centre of Mass. Nice. Thank you. Love yes. that. Yes. Love that. They fucking hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Love they, that. I know it's mega. Yeah. Isn't it? It's mega, right? But but it was one of a bunch of names. But the, the point I'm making is, we went round the houses trying yeah. to decide the name. It's like God, man. We were, we were all just giving it too much thought. You know, so we did the same thing with little things like the logo, which is a small part of the brand, right? Yeah. We did the same thing with the logo. We, we just went bigger than Ben Hur. Yeah. Then we settled on the logo, and then. Was it about six months ago? One of the guys was like, fucking logo shit. Like, we all decided on it. You <laughs> yeah. said it was good. Like, what are you talking about? You know, because your perception changes over time yeah. and things. Is going, but like you said, you can just change stuff. Needs to you be. can change. But you need to give it a soak period. Yeah. And, yeah. and Rob, Rob's super pragmatic as well. He's a Zimbo. Really pragmatic. Zimbo? Zimbabwean. Oh, yeah. right, 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 uh, right, right. But he's like uber Zimbabwean. Um, mega cool. Mega pragmatic. It's like, we don't need to worry about the fluffy stuff. He's like, do we like that? Yeah, let's do that. Because what we're going to set out to do might well change. It means the brand has to evolve. Actually, at the moment, we love it. You know, and uh, it's all about helping companies navigate from their strategy to their execution. And the the two L's in the Challenger are like a little maze. So like it works quite nicely. And we want to build the place around ex-warfighters, government consultants, humanitarians, doers, executors. So actually, Challenger it just fits the kind of people we want to come and work for us. Mm. What? How do you know? Did you serve with Robin? Is yeah, Rob. Rob is Yeah, Rob. Robert Robert. Pearson. Uh, he and I were four two commando together back in two thousand and ten. Just before I deployed on fourteen, I think. Um, so he was one of the company two ICs there. And I just know we weren't like best mates back in the call. We were good mates. We actually met um, fighting naked over a broomstick in the mess. It was like love at first sight. We were at the front of the uh, the naked chain wrestling over the broomstick. He kicked me in the he kicked me in the plums to get the kick the stick off me. Um, <laughs> But obviously, for the last year, we've, we've been inseparable, um, as we as we sort of found founded Challenger. What was he doing before then? Um, so Rob, he left the core similar time to me, and he's done some really interesting stuff. But he was working for um, different US and UK government entities, doing stabilisation activity in predominantly sub-Saharan Africa, um, Somalia, Sudan, Nigeria, Turkey, Syria. You know, he was evacuating people during the siege of Aleppo. Um, created marauder forces in Mozambique to get up into the north um, to, to quell the insurgency. All DFID money or USAID money uh, implementing big complex projects and programs in, in sub-Saharan Africa. So he's done that for 10 years. Um, and the idea as we came together was he had all this experience working for UK, US government and he had all that front-end business, the big, the big houses that deliver that work. I was at React with this quite large audience of people like you and the other responders who would make ideal consultants for that. And also, like, at that time, my LinkedIn reach was quite big. <laughs> he was like, we could bring these two parts together and create our own consultancy house to go and implement these projects. So we would start bidding onto the uh, Combat Stabilization Fund, um, predominantly onto that, actually, uh, to deliver these really difficult projects with the people like where I was trying to take React. You know, We will go where others can't because of the people we can recruit and the people we can train. So that was the genesis of Challenger. It like it sort of it moved away a little bit, and we've just we're in complex project delivery at the moment. Well, I've just been in Dubai. He's doing a tech transformation in London. Um, 
but it starts to come back actually and we're looking now again back into the Congo and South and and some work we might be able to do there um, working with different companies that are trying to to open new business lines there it's really difficult to operate down there um, what's going on what's I mean if you've got a, I'm guessing you may have a handle on it what's going on with the the um, influx of Chinese influence in Africa Central mm. Africa is that is that a thing that's happening or is it or not because <clears throat> I've heard it a few times now in inverted commas China, China own Africa mm. you know this snuggling their way in, in business you know sort of a different method of <sighs> control and influence over the, mm. what traditionally be you know more military oriented or yeah. more over you know um, is there yeah is there is that causing any issues over there business wise well it's like what did that continent need? Didn't need more colonization, did it? <laughs> and yeah, but China's been buying up the the East Coast for for quite a long time now. Because you're right, their foreign policy, ours and the Americans were always built around hard hard force, wasn't it? Hard force, soft power. Whereas China's is built through economic influence. And yeah, certainly down that East Coast, they've they've bought up huge chunks of it. It's interesting to see now the the UAE is starting to buy up or starting to get involved <coughs> in the West because as people have countries all over the world at the moment have energy and food uh, sustainability issues and the UAE is no different and they're now trying to flex their muscles into West Africa a bit um, for their own sustainability issues so it's just another player in the space and of course it makes more compl complex why the interest in West Africa what's the what what are the resources there they're after um, I don't know I actually I don't know um, I, I need to look at it more because we're not really interested in West Africa at the moment but it's, it's all around energy and food um, you know, the UAE doesn't have rain, <laughs> so it doesn't, it can't have agriculture. Um, so their food has to come from somewhere else. They're looking at new ways to create artificial farming um, to sort of, um, what do you describe? It's, it's uh, basically to grow beef that's not S beef. Synthetic beef. Synthetic beef, yeah. Um, mm. Because they, they've got huge issues um, with their long-term sustainability because they don't have water. Yeah, they're not in the greatest part of the world to survive, are they? That's like, right. And so. they're building all the time, you know, these massive skyscrapers. It's a it's an incredible place to be. It's like being in the future, being like, oh, how sustainable is this? I'm not sure I like it there. <laughs> I do like it there. Um, Short period of time I do, but yeah. not it's a strange place. Yeah. It's very very I don't know, cl clinical, if that's the right way to describe it. It's like you either, you either you know you know in terms of like just culturally and sort of ways of life and, and pattern of life and stuff. Here in the UK, you can you know you're either in the house, you, or you're out in the lash. But there's mm. an in between. You can pop over and see a friend. You can yeah. there's sort of a lot of in betweeny social aspects you can have. When I was in Dubai, I've been a few times for a few weeks at a time. Not as much time as you spent out there, but there didn't seem to be that in between because everything's so far apart mm. and everything's so it's like it's very formal so if you're going to go and do something social it needs to be organized or and if you're not doing something organized you're in the house on your own kind yeah. of thing it's weird i didn't like it i think what i found out there was um because there's a really there's a really big group of bootneck expats out there all working for shamal and and gal and so i, th I think there was like these pockets of community um because dubai's all broke up into these different cities like motor city sports city marina and i think in those you get these enclaves of community where it's more like what you described because I, I fell in that in the last sort of half of my time out there and that was really cool because then actually it was just going to see people at their pool 
nipping the golf course for a few beers or like a long boozy lunch, then back to someone's house. So I could see it there. Um, so I, but I think it's in pockets. Mm. Um, but you're right, it's massive. It's all spread out. Everything's a 14 lane highway. <laughs> you can't walk anywhere really. Um, it's a bit more like living in London, but just with massive highways everywhere. Is that where you see yourselves HQ in, Challenger? Dubai? No, no, we'll always be in England. I think um, we've got some conversations going on at the moment. I can't, I can't say too much about at the moment, but that will see us opening an entity in Dubai to be able to operate from there um, and potentially one in South Africa as well to be able to operate from there. Um, but yeah, home will always be the UK. Challenger will always be a UK company as well um, because most of the people we're going to want to employ are, f- are from, from here, I think. You see yourselves getting involved in the anti-poaching side of things in Africa? Or are you already going down that way? Um, we would, absolutely, because you know the, the genesis of the company was to, to support NGO projects. That's where we, that's where we started our thinking. Um, and I know uh, James Glancy and Rob Simpson that run uh, Veterans for Wildlife. Um, obviously Mike Brewer that from React, super involved with them. And I've been chatting to them over the summer, actually just giving them some advice on where we were as Team Rubicon all the way back when, because that's sort of where they're at now, this sort of juncture of having to slightly restart, <coughs> find money, employ a full-time CEO. Um, and for the right projects, yeah, we would definitely get involved in anti-poaching. We still want to do, I still want to do good things in the world. Um, I don't want to completely leave the charity sector behind. I just want to do it in a, in a for-profit sense now. Mm. That's another, uh, I mean, oh, the reason I ask about the, anti- the anti-poaching side, is that seems to come to the, the forefront of, just attention at the m- over the last few years for some for a reason I can't work out. Mm. I don't know why. Don't know why. There was some there was some um, there was some pretty alley gigs going on, wasn't there? A few years ago, where there was just parrots and bootnecks going out hunting poachers to start with. I think that's why everyone fell in love with it because it was like, it was really Gucci, wasn't it? <laughs> but I think it's become more it's become more uh, regulated and proper now, and it's more about capacity building and and training rangers to deliver and doing investigations and handling evidence. It's, it's much more professional now, isn't it? I mean, not just a load of ex-soldiers running around with uh, long-range rifles. <laughs> not, yeah, not only that, it's other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they got armory checks now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. I, so I'd enjoy getting involved in that, I think. Just, yeah. Just, just generally, because it's like uh, yeah, it's saving the animals, man. And it's, it's good fun doing it. Yeah, I've actually been thinking, because I... Whilst I'll, I'll never work for another charity again, um, I still want to do some stuff. I'll be looking at volunteering for the RNLI and get on the lifeboat crew because it's still something mega worthwhile. It's still exciting, you know. Like some of the stuff we did at React was super exciting, wasn't it? Um, I think anti-poaching work would be really exciting. Um, but at first, I've got, to, I've got to build this business before I've got yeah, to I feel take off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did that first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where am I going to go with that? Where am I going? What was I going to say, Sharpie? <laughs> mate, this is your show. <laughs> I need to answer the questions. Yeah, I've had a brain fart, mate. <laughs> Jesus Christ. 150 episodes and you're still running out of questions. Yeah, like, yeah 150. Um, what, what episode were you? Oh, God, I don't know. I must, must have been one of the, the early ones. It was yeah, the 30s, yeah, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? I think it was one of the early ones. Yeah, yeah. I was just before Johnny Mercer. I think he was a couple of episodes after me. Okay. That that first one with you, I'm, I'll laugh at myself on that one. <laughs> I'll laugh at myself yeah. on that one. When I think back, you go, you know, you, <clears throat> you know, like, I, I, <clears throat> so I've learned, I say I've learned how to do this as time <laughs> gone on. I've just had a complete fucking brain just fart. The first time I've never said anything, mate. <laughs> no, but I laugh at myself because uh, 
think back and you go, right, Hugh, you know, you like critique yourself, Hugh, you're interviewing the CEO of a charity and you talked about that. You brought that up as a, as a talking point. <laughs> <laughs> you know exactly what I'm on about, don't you? I don't you know exactly what I'm on about. And before what I, were you doing? Before I came up here last night, I, uh, <laughs> or before I came up this morning last night, I got a quick look at the headlines to see if there was anything really, <laughs> really, really contentious that you might try and put me to the sword on, just so I could have some some pre-prepared lines to take. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm more, sen- I'm, yeah, I'm more sensible now. It's like you, you know, I don't, you know, it's like I don't, I don't want to, you know, it's open conversation like we're having now. Yeah, but. Lessons like I learned on that podcast, you know, I didn't cause it. It was, if you look at it from the perspective of, okay, is there anything from Richard's perspective as a CEO of charity, <laughs> is there anything that could be, you know, misconstrued in that podcast that maybe isn't necessarily the best thing to talk about when you think about from a charity perspective? Yes, you fucking <laughs> idiot. What are you doing? It's like, it's like screw the nut for the guest is what yeah. it is. It's like, what the fuck are you hey, talking about? Anyone uh, listening is going to have to go back and look that one up for themselves now. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, question for you. Afghanistan. Mm. Want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. What do you think about the situation that's unfolded? Nice open question there for you. Because well, yeah. I couldn't ask you the, was it all worth it? Question. Oh, yeah. I haven't quite figured out that I answer think that's yet. Been, I think that's been well covered by everyone else, hasn't it? Um, I, w- I was in Dubai as that all unfolded, and I'm glad I was not here. Um and why is that? Because I just felt, and I, this might be an unpopular opinion, I just felt that the veteran community on mass, and we're all different, right? But we're all different. But I just thought the way the press latched onto it, I thought we bore our ass a little bit. I thought, like, <sighs> when we went there back in 2006, 2011, 2009, I certainly don't remember as being all about kids and education and I remember as being drilled to go and fight an enemy right I remember as loving doing that you know I remember having really bad days but I also remember as loving that and uh, that was what we did that's what we trained for and I remember all the fots at the time were us sitting in sangers covered in link and covered in gun oil and then in the news every picture was people surrounded by women and kids and I, I don't remember that part of the conflict so well and it was awful the way the West ran away and created a humanitarian crisis now, which is really r- unsolvable, probably, because we could probably never re-enter the country. Um, was it probably always going to happen, potentially? You know, were we ever going to find a way to withdraw from Afghan and them to be able to sustain themselves when no one else has ever succeeded there in the history? I don't know. Um, but was it was I getting triggered by the, the views of, uh, by the sight of the country falling? No, I wasn't, you know. Was I thinking, oh my God, what a waste of my life? No, I wasn't. You know, I, I felt at the time, me and everyone I served with did our shift, and did our best in that shift. What happens in politics that we can't control? No point bleating and worrying about it. It's, it's out of my sphere of control. What was in my sphere of control was those six months at a time in very small grid squares at a time. And I did my best in that bit. It's for someone else to do the rest. And if that falls apart, you know... I'm fine with it, you know. Yeah, you, uh, yeah. Um, I got asked the question this morning on an a interview I did this morning for this, and it was that I think it was that open question, like what what do you think about what's gone on in Afghanistan this year? 
and I, I'm the same with you. It's how how if you it's how to reconcile it, right? Because you, we have to accept that. Well, we do have to accept that there. You know, I'm of the same opinion of you. Okay, I can like I understand it, but it, it wasn't triggering me when it was happening. No, you know, but there are people who you know that we know uh, potentially who yeah. The, the, the loss of their friends and stuff had a fucking profound effect, had a profound effect on them like it does everyone, mm. but a profound effect where they're looking at the situation in Afghanistan and just it's thrown up. Yeah. Know, what the fuck are we doing? A lot of anger, yeah. which is completely understandable. I think <clears throat> in terms of reconciling, reconciling and understanding the was it all worth it question. Well, if you, if you, if you go down the, the route of looking at it from too high a level, at the campaign level, over all the years we were there, what did we achieve? Were we, in inverted commas, successful? Mm. And that, well, you can't answer that question because th- we don't know what the definition of success there was for ourselves, no. right? So you, exactly like you said, I look at it on a low level. What was my personal impact mm. in that place when I was there? Was it generally good po- and positive, you know, generally for the people that I impacted when I was there? The, mm. the, the local, you know, for, I was going to say Taliban then. Yeah. The Afghans when I was there. Yeah. Um, and I think the answer to that question is yes. Mm. And, but there's a bunch of things p- plays into that. It's, it's, one is my impact on those people that I influenced there. Two is my own conduct. Was I, was I doing things for the right reason? Mm. Was I moral at all times? Was I ethical at all times? Was, you know, all those pieces, and if and the answer to that piece is, yeah, I I was doing things for the right reason, making the right decisions, not making poor decisions because I was out there for a fucking jolly and I didn't care about anyone else's yeah. lives, so doing for the right reasons. And I think we had a positive impact, and I've got no issue. Yeah, I've got no issue. You can <clears throat> the other way to look at it is ignoring this this definition of success that we don't know what it was. It kept moving the goalposts. What what were we trying to achieve in the end? You know. Um, If you if you ignore that and look at and ask the question, is Afghanistan, is the situation now better than what it would have been if we'd never been there for the last 20 years? Mm. If, if we had never been there for the last 20 years or whatever it was, right? Um, I don't think the Taliban would be as they are now. Now... They obviously they're still being flipping lunatics in the streets, and or, or they, they they seem to be going back to their old behaviors and said they weren't. But there's they, they're definitely more. There's more room for communication with them. Mm. There's more room for compromise with them because they're now acting as a legitimate political entity, mm. which opens the doors to the possibility that we can influence their behavior in that country in a way other than, other than the military way, which mm. maybe wouldn't have been the case if we hadn't been there for 20 years. Be, that hand has been forced. They've had to do that. Mm. That's the way they've had to go. So there may still be, you know, the, the effects of the campaign uh, m- may still be yet to be seen mm. in 10, 15, 20 years' time. Yeah, time will, time will tell on that. Um, what the 20 years certainly did was by the West, 20 years of relative peace on its homeland. You know, post-77, the... the by closing down Afghanistan as an insurgents training playground, it meant their ability to project force into the West was was kept shut after seven seven. I mean that was definitely success. Um we'll see how much long term success that has that has going forward. Um and I th- I look at it like you from a more junior level 
and that was it worth it? I don't think as a junior officer, you know, I might be able to like talk about it with my mates in the mess and stuff. And but as a junior person in the in the military, that's not necessary for us to question. When you join the military, you become part of that toolkit to deliver foreign policy. You know, you're a, you're a tool to get policy done. You don't get to influence the policy itself. I don't think now that uh, in this world where we're all much more enlightened and much more engaged from a much younger age in all politics, that might not necessarily be a popular view. It might be an old school view. Um, it's definitely how I feel though. And when it's the press like skews everything as well, because they latch into certain parts of a narrative, they latch into certain parts of the story and amplify it. And what they latched into was the effect this was having on the veterans community and how, because you're right, some of the things that happened to all of us have had profound effects. And of course it will. When you see things like that, it's going to have horrible, profound effects. But I just, I felt that the press did what they did in 2010, 11 again, and they made us all look like we're broken and that this conflict, we're victims of the conflict and we're not. Like, we're just not. The best people I ever met were in the military and they're outside crushing life. Of course, we're all living with that experience and some of us have to live with really negative side effects of that experience. But what, what we did again in that bubble, what the press did was make the veteran community look like this fragile, weak, broken entity. And that's what I mean by that we bore our ass again because that doesn't do anything to empower the community. That doesn't do anything to help veterans get employed after the military. It doesn't do anything to strengthen all of the skills and experiences we have. Because, yes, it was traumatic sometimes. But those traumas, those experiences make us who we are, which make us so much more effective in other walks of life. With people that out those experiences can't have. But the press loves the, loves the pity narrative. And, unfortunately, it amplifies parts of the community that strengthen that, as opposed to other parts of the community which show that yeah, look, that was honking, but that was then, and this is now. And look at what this community goes on to deliver outside. Because the veteran community, I think, is a huge asset to the country. Huge. But I, I think, and I, when I was at React, I was trying to show that all the time, and just what veterans could do for the country. Um, and I think in COVID, we certainly showed that. But um, every opportunity the press gets, um, and the social media algorithm seems to latch into it as well, we amplify, the, I think, the wrong part of of our community we shouldn't ever get rid of it because we have to support people but it's not it's not everyone no you're right yeah that that blanket sweeping victim mentality thing that we either yeah you're right mate that we either label with or and or people allow the label they accept it but this is but part of that is because it's a fucking attention thing it's just it's the worst like it's the worst thing you you you, i'm agreeing with you you know you I would dread to think that I ended up getting a getting a job somewhere, you know, in the future or whatever, or, or just benefiting from something uh, because out of sympathy instead of merit. Yeah, you know what I mean. Oh, he just got given it because oh, he's a he's an ex-military and yeah. Oh. I think that's a hugely damaging narrative, and it's been going on for too long, and it the only thing that can change it is all of us. <laughs> it, the only thing that can change it is the community whatever the community means. Because every veteran is different, isn't it? Every service is different. Every cat badge is different. We all serve different times. We all see different things. You can't just call us all veterans and think we're all the same, you know, because no, no one person is the same as the next. But the only, th- the only way we can fix that narrative is as a group um, and to stop using that as our mouthpiece um, and stop seeking validation 
for what we served by how much we suffer. Like, I, I think it became for a while to to demonstrate the level of your service, you had to demonstrate the level of your suffering. And that I think is damaging as well because actually you can have done incredible service. You can be an incredibly professional soldier with incredible conduct and you might not have a mental health problem afterwards. That doesn't mean your service was any less valuable than the person that does. And I, I think that dichotomy was becoming hard to navigate for people. Mm. Very interesting. It also, it also that, that victim mentality, it can, it can be an inhibitor to your own improvement, progress. You become, mm. you become, you know, if you, if you are using that, imp you know, that impacting yourself, that suffering from, mm. from your part in the, in whatever campaign, whatever conflict, whatever operation, whatever arm of the military you're in, uh, uh, if you're using that label or that that as a as a way of getting attention mm. or to achieve an aim online, mm. it's something you can never move past, and then you're always that sick person. Yeah, I deleted Facebook in the summer, but the best thing I ever did, um, because you're just you're absorbing all this stuff by osmosis. I find it really frustrating. But once you label something, you can you can disconnect from the accountability. My wa my wife taught me this. She's a teacher, well, she was a teacher. She runs a charity of her own now, and. And she has this wicked saying that it might not be your fault, the reason you are you are, but it's your responsibility to deal with it because no one else is going to. And when they, you know, that she she specialised in uh, troubled schools, trying to get better in areas of economic depression. She came out of central London schools, that kind of thing, and um, <coughs> children very young using Class A drugs because uh, it, it was readily accessible to them. She said they don't drink as much as probably we did when we were kids. We were all trying to get cider and get another part. But they are using Class A drugs. And schools would label them drug addicts at 12, 13. You know, maybe they'd done some cocaine or they'd done some ecstasy. And they would label them very quickly a drug addict. But she said, then what that does for that child is it takes away all the accountability. Because it's got a label. It's a victim of an addiction. And actually, that child has to learn to take responsibility for its actions. Um, and so do we. And once you label things, and once you become a victim... You sort of, well, it's not my fault anymore. It's not my responsibility to solve this problem. And actually, we're the only people that can solve our own problems in reality. Yeah, do you know what? That's a hard pillow. That's a hard pillow. It's a hard pillow to swallow. It's a hard pillow to swallow for people. That is. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, and I, I learned that with my dad when, you know, he's a, he's a recovering alcoholic now. Um, I used to be a flipping, a very, very good at being alcoholic. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I remember listening to him on your podcast a while ago. Yeah. yeah. And he so one of the things I learned, you know, when he was when he was um an alcoholic was that it's an illness, you know, it's it's, it's an illness. Mm. It's a it's it's a, it's a fucking illness in the brain. Yeah, you know. But like you said, it it's it's for him to take a step forward and do something about it. You know, mm. we tried everything, everything to try and get him to stop drinking the way he was drinking. And uh, I give up in the end. I give mm. up in the end because I, again, I realise there's nothing. We can't do anything. At one point, I was going to kidnap him. Mm. I was going to put. I was going to bundle him into my car and drive him to Colchester, where I was living at the time, and he was going to live with me. Mm. And I was there, and there'd be no alcohol in the house. Mm. That, that's the point. Is that? And then my mother wouldn't have taken that very well, so it didn't happen. <laughs> and in the end, he ended up, you know, a, a, a uh, near-death experience because of his drinking. Mm. And um enforced cold turkey in hospital and now he's a you know that's that's what had to happen because yeah. because he couldn't make the decision 
to sort himself out. Mm. But because of the illness, but yeah. all, but you know that it goes at uh, that point, it goes beyond a willpower thing. It becomes a you know it's like fucking can't fucking do it because he's constantly mentally compromised. But it's the same with anything. It's the same with mental Ill health. You know, um, when I was when I was at my worst, it, it only got that far with me because. I wasn't. I wouldn't make the decision to go and get help. Yeah, is w- what it is. And when I did, it was. It was again that point of you. The, you have to do it. You have to. It's you. Every, everything. It all comes down to the decision on the person. Yeah. And anyone that says otherwise is bullshit. Mm. The only time it doesn't is when someone's in a flipping coma, or someone is, you know, unconscious and they can't make the decision. But every other time, there has to be a decision for yourself to yeah. accept help, seek help. Yeah, that's what I think anyway. Yeah. And it's not. An, people don't like hearing that. No. I think it is the case, um, and and I'm not an expert in, or I've got no expertise whatsoever in in mental health and the illnesses around that and how hard that must be to get help. Where I sort of focus my attention is on that middle bracket of the community that have created this narrative that we just don't fit in society anymore. Veterans, I come out, civvies don't get us. They're 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 detaching from their accountability to make themselves a civilian, and you know that when we come out into this world, we have to start again in many ways. We've got all this great skill, but we also, we have to be accountable for the fact that we don't really know anything about the outside world. And it's not on them to adjust for us. We have to adjust to fit into this world. Otherwise, as as what we have seen, I think, is if you don't fit, then we can really start going down quite a negative path. And that's when we can start creating our own mental health problems because we suddenly feel completely lost, don't we? And Like, we don't belong anywhere and our identity's gone and no one gets us and... Yeah, right. it's a sense of entitlement, isn't it? And mm. you become a bit of a twisted person mm. who's just a toxic corner of of the military community. Yeah, it's I think, um, um, I remember talking to uh, to Gaz from Sinitas Guild, who had been doing some work with one of the ladies in the states, and they're talking about the dysfunctional vet, and like there, there was like there was an identity building in the states of the dysfunctional vet, that sort of bearded baseball cat wearing, sits in the corner bar, won't stare at anyone, thousand years, but it's like they were creating a caricature of themselves because being the dysfunctional vet was becoming almost desirable. And he said like he thought that that was going to be the way we would follow. We tend to follow the States, don't we? <laughs> a couple of years behind. And and that isn't desirable. Like, that's not what I think of our veteran community. I don't see us all as broken and twisted and un- unable to settle into into civilian life. It'll be hard to get away from though, because I mean, you mentioned social media earlier. You mentioned the news; it it works for them. You get, get, yeah. c- creates discontent, creates arguments, gives a perception that there's something wrong somewhere in society. It needs to be fixed, mm. and it should be fixed by someone else. You know, and like you, you know, like you said, it's it's the worst. It's the it's the worst possible way the military community be, could be could be perceived. Mm. There's so much potential in in who we are and what we can what we can do. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those. It's one of those hard subjects that people don't talk about very often because it's hard. Because actually, you can open yourself up to quite a lot of criticism because it sounds like we're being uncaring and unsympathetic. And actually, really far from it. And I've spent seven years working in military charities, um, but those charities should be focused on the people that really need the acute care. They've got really big problems, or not even the acute care. They just need the the the, the 
the like slight touch on Attila at the time. I, d I just, I don't think the whole community is broken and triggered and vulnerable. I think actually the majority of the communities is really quietly getting on with life. Um, in various jobs from Inmarsat to charities to building sites to, you know, they're everywhere just doing the work, just quietly getting on with their lives. Mm. Yeah, it'd be all right. I wonder if it'll. I wonder if it'll peter out. That this. Yeah, I wonder if the uh, that victim mentality and the and everything we've just been talking about will peter out as we get f as we get further down the line away from Afghanistan. Yeah, as as younger generations start to leave the military now, who who won't have been away on those tours, it probably will. It will dilute and it will because those those people will be coming out probably having not been to a a conflict anywhere. You know, hopefully for them. Yeah, you say hopefully. I don't know. It, it's like the the, the military is in a, like a shit place now. I think there's peaks and troughs, isn't it? Of you have peaks and troughs of campaigns and operations, um, and that's peaks of activity. Mm. And in those peaks of activity, recruitment retention are generally quite high. And then when those campaigns and operations drop off, or those periods of time, those those periods of high in, high frequency ops drop off, then you go into a trough of, well, you get retention recruitment issues. You get a, you lose a wealth of experience because mm. all the people that done all that stuff, they end up leaving. Saw it after, you know, after the Afghan campaign, saw it after the Iraq camp campaign or, or up certain certain operations when you, you go out there. You know, when you, when you came back from your first Afghan tour, probably probably noticed there was like senior Senior people, experiences from seniors, charms to screws, between sergeants, they would just leave because it's sort of done it. It's done the trick. Yeah. After the 06 tour, we had a massive, you know, 07, we had a massive problem. Mm. So many people left because they'd been there and done it. And they're like, right. Gone. NCP was paying hundreds and hundreds that's of pounds. NCP, that's a good and point. And maritime security as well. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that is a very good point. But you probably know for another 5, 10 years of, of absolute dross experience in the military, mm. like it was in the 90s, with the exception of the Gulf War. Yeah. And some small operations, you know, in um, the Eastern Bloc and uh, the Balkans and yeah. places like that. Well, I'm, I'm well out of touch with what the military is doing. I mean, even the Marines, I don't really understand the units now and how they're laid down because they've all been split into separate little task groups. And so that I'm not even close to the core anymore. I guess it's just in that transition period. It's becoming what the army needs to be for tomorrow, as opposed to what it was yesterday. And you're right; it will. I think it will probably completely change the demographic of people that join it. I think when we, you know, if we're in the British Legion in 20 years' time, and our blazer and our cap badge on, you know, looking at people leaving the military, then they're probably very different to the kind of people we joined with. Because I just, it is in a transition period. It will become war fighting. I think is going to change. I always said it wouldn't because it's always going to need. At the end of the day, there's always going to have to be somebody where they call it where the metal meets the flesh, and that will probably never go away completely. But I think the emphasis will shift. It won't be the majority of what they're doing, I, I think. But I'm not. Shift. I'm not so shift to where? Into information, into um, autonomous vehicles, into internets of things that move in swarms and are linked by sensors to ground troops. And I think the human will always be the decision maker. But I think where the the metal meets the flesh. Actually, it might be metal meeting metal, um, much more than metal meeting flesh. Mm. Slightly off topic. Mm. 
submarine service have got a massive uh, retention problem at the minute. Yeah. I was, speak, I was speaking to a friend on... Uh, are you aware of it? No. I was speaking to a friend who rang me out of the blue, actually. I not seen him for 20 years. Anyway, he's 45 years old and currently enlisted in the submarine service. <laughs> he's X3 para, right? He's X3 para. And he, 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 then he went to the PT Corps. And then he got out, did maritime security. Then he joined the MPGS. Hates that. Mm. Bumped into a bumped into an old colleague in Aldershot, and who is now in the Navy. And the guy said, "You can transfer to the submarine <laughs> service. No, you can transfer to the Royal Navy for MPGS. It's forty-five. Yeah. Said, what? Yeah, you can because it's classes." part of the services so you're right. not you're not getting in at 45 you're already in it's right. like you just transfer in within we, we branch yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said for one caveat well two caveats you've got to be a medic you've got to come train as a medic and submariner yeah fuck it but the retention problem is being caused by so they, they haven't got a recruitment problem they've got young sprogs or whatever you call them in the navy joining mm. up to the submarine service then they're going on the subs that can now go down you know, go underwater for stay down for longer and longer periods. Mm. They were saying the big, the big, the big bombers now, like six months at a time. Oh, no. under. And the the younguns <laughs> can't handle being off comms, mate. Can't handle being no access to WhatsApp, internet, yeah. and all that for that period of time because they're so they've been so reliant on it all their life. I wonder if I could be now. I wonder if I'm so reliant on it now. No, like we. I think we say we we will we will blame the uh, the youngins now, don't we? But we've all changed. Like society has fundamentally changed. I'm pretty sure if I if I had to, yeah, you could put me underwater for six months. I don't think I'd choose it. <laughs> you know, like, that's a long time in a dark metal tube under the ogin, not being able to talk to anybody apart from the person you're sharing. You're not even sharing bunks with. You're sharing a bed with them. You're hot yeah. mattressing. Yeah. Like that's uh, maybe I'm not that hardy anymore either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't fancy that. Um, but like we're we're all super connected all the time, aren't we? I I tried I do now try and reduce it massively. Mm. So one of the things I noticed over the last couple of years is if I spend prolonged time on my phone, doing whatever, like we're all doing, just doing shit in my phone, yeah. right? My level of attention and, and ability to focus plummets me. Yeah, no, it plummets. Seen. It's terrible. And now I I've got an app on the phone now, and it's uh, it's pain in the ass sometimes. It's called Freedom. Um, on, on Android, and um, I can only access, so I select what apps I'm allowed to access all the time, right. which is Gmail, Google Maps, or banking apps, that's it. Right. Everything else, from the browser through to games, whatever, I can only access five minutes of every hour. All right. So it's from like 11 a.m. to 11.05, which is great, until you rock up for a flight <laughs> on Ryanair, and you need to log in into your Ryanair account to to show them your yeah. boarding pass and you've got to wait another 47 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and your missus is going, what? Maybe, <laughs> maybe unlock your browser, mate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it makes a massive difference. I yeah. Could, uh, yeah a and, and since I started being more disciplined with the phone, I, I started reading again. Hmm. Like, Whole paragraphs at a time, Sharpie. No without, way. without your missus is helping you though. Yeah, you? <laughs> <laughs> breaking them down. Yeah, I started reading again. You know, th- uh, it's and I. That's an, another thing I could partly because I found other stuff. Just I wasn't able to fucking read. Literally, yeah. I couldn't get past a couple of lines. My wine, my wine, my, my wind, my mind. One, one hundred episode one hundred fifty is going pear shaped. Oh I man, can't yeah. my words. I'm 
flipping, my mind's going blank. Anyway, yeah. No, <laughs> no the phone's a big one. I, I find it... So I'm not, like, I do read, but I have to really make myself read because my mind does wonder. I'm also not very good at, like, really deep work. I'm very good at being dynamic with people and connecting to problems and solving problems on the fly. But I'm, I'm trying to sit and um, define some of Challenger's products. And it's quite deep work. I've got to really concentrate and I've got to write... And I've got to take what's in my mind and, and I've got to sort of, I've got to analytically think about my own development and then get it into a clear, concise definition. That's hard for me. That's not really how my brain works. And yet I have to make sure I've got no distractions because otherwise I'll just then pick up my phone and, you know, or get on Slack and chat to Rob. You know, I just, it does, like it eats attention, mm. eats attention. One thing I've noticed though is it's not the same with, with my kids. So I was really when I was when I was realizing you know in the last few years, God, this has really has a bad impact on me with my phone. I was worrying about the kids because they got phones, obviously. Yeah. And thinking, oh my God. And but what I've noticed with them, they both they've got two daughters, and they're, they're both different the way they use the phones. But it definitely does have the same Im- mental impact on them, and they can take it or leave it. Right. You know, they can they can they can be on it for hours at a time. Mm. Other times they won't. They're, they're not. It's they they're not. They're not completely addicted to it okay. in the way that we are. You, you, you see, that's the worst thing in the world when you see like a mum or a parent mm. and they, they're sat with their kid, for example, and the, the parent is just on their phone yeah. scrolling through, you know, and the kids are sat there. You know, that kind of... Or when you see two people out on a date and they're not talking to each other, just they're sitting at the table together, but they're just mental. Pop, pop. <laughs> yeah, mental, it's it? It's mental. Mental. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah, it is mental. Yeah. I'm... Uh, yeah, I'm quite. I'm, I think I'm pretty good with it. I'm pretty good at leaving it in my pocket, um, especially if I'm out with people. Like I'm pretty good at being engaged in the conversation, but if I'm sitting on my own trying to work and it's on the table, that's when I can be like, because I don't want to be doing the work. I can just sort of drift off and pick it up. Yeah, but you know what you're missing there, though. This is a big part of why I got the app as well. Mm. Is you're missing, you're missing your. Well, you may probably, you may do it in other ways. The being alone, your thoughts time. Yeah, we don't. None of us have that anymore. We used to sit at a bus stop. Yeah, you know, right. everyone used to have the opportunity to sit at a bus stop or doing something mm. when phones didn't exist, and you're just there in your own mind. Yeah. You're not talking about it. You're yeah, and yeah, you, yeah. you're just going over what's happened before, and you're thinking more in depth about that argument, you know, that discussion yeah. you have, whatever. You think what you're going to be doing. Yeah, your mind's yeah, yeah. just there. You're more mindful just generally. And yeah. now, no, doesn't happen. I am um, when I run. I don't wear headphones. So like running, I'm in my thoughts, which is a good and a bad thing sometimes. Um, dog walking tend to be my thoughts so yeah I don't listen to music if I'm out and doing that sort of stuff but you're right if you get it then you get that opportunity they're important because it's not meditation is it but it is it's just letting your brain just sort of like roll through things and just just yeah I think it's a big part of why the attention span of people has gone gone down the pan I think you know you look at the way social media is now I mean what you can 30 seconds a minute videos are uploaded and that's and if that if you're not grasping you know oh, as, yeah. as, as content you know, as, as a content maker if you're not grasping the person in the first five seconds you've lost them yeah because they're just flicking through jesus christ is yeah. that it people don't even wait to hear like the fourth or fifth I word know. or read it and it's gone no yeah imagine being a marketing professional now in that world where you've got to try and get people's attention so i'd never seen reels before um but because i was three months in a hotel room in dubai i spent a lot of time on my own and I started looking at reels. Oh my, that is the most addictive thing in the whole world. Is it just longer videos? Well, they're like, they can be anything from 10 seconds to about two minutes, but they're just all Instagram videos and they're all like little funnies and little sketches and or snowboarders jumping out of things or like, I'm obsessed by, 
I, I want a wingsuit now. That's why I'm going to start free falling and just watching people doing this cr- cool like wing. But it like it's super addictive because it's like 20 seconds at a time. Next video, all over music. And yeah, I was in this hotel grot on my own, and I realized I was wasting a lot of time watching reels, just lying on my pit at night when I could have been doing anything else. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. And and that's not... really unlike me, and it sucked me right in. I've had to like properly disengage from it because otherwise, just sit there, just like monging it. So how do you manage really... it then? How do you how do you control yourself? I just I just make sure I don't do it now. I just so people can't do that. Try and exercise self control. People can't do that. Yeah. There are people that can't do it. Well, because these are designed to be addictive. They're designed to steal your attention, to steal minutes of your life. Like, there's that uh, documentary on Netflix, um, The Social Dilemma. Oh, like, yeah. I watched that. I'm so glad I did because it terrified me and I've like properly made sure I... I've only watched half of it. I've watched it all. Yeah. I got distracted by my phone. Yeah, I've not watched it all. But, um, I want to get, I, I, I want to get on um, uh, a evolutionary biologist alright um, yeah I, I don't know who I don't know any no but I want to get someone on there's none in three para <laughs> no, 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 no de-evolutionary yeah right yeah <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we <laughs> we um, no <laughs> we lost my train of thought now I, I want to discuss I want to try I want to try and get a handle on where they think where they think society is going like where, where what are we doing because, like you're saying, just with the phones and attention span, like, I say what in, in, in five years' time, we're gonna be so different. Well, look at how different society is now. And if it's pattern of life, look, look at if you like to look at the street and mm. sit there for ten minutes, watch it now, and then go back to ten years ago, yeah, or or fifteen years ago, and watch the same street. You go, it'd be like two different species. I know, yeah, two different species. Yeah, you look, you'd be looking at com- acting completely differently. There's a there's a show on Radio Four at nine o'clock this morning. Uh, yeah, so it's actually I'm missing it now, but it was called We Broke Society. I'm going to try and get it on catch up. I heard it on the way up here. They're talking about it. It's all about social media, the way we're all now behaving, the way we're all fighting each other online. We're all picking sides all the time and screaming and trolling. And it's it's called like We Broke Society. And I'm I'm going to I'm going to catch it on catch up on the way back down. Cause that, that sounds good. Yeah, because that's basically exactly what we're talking about. Like how how our ability to be completely connected to all this information and disinformation all the time and latch into it and... And not understanding the impact it has on... But basically being a wanker. Yeah. Like, I... I <coughs> be careful what I say here. I know a young person <laughs> who, uh, who... who posted something on on social media and it, I, I saw it and I was like, what on earth? Because I know that young person mm. in real life, and it's not the it's not like the personality that is portrayed on the social media yeah. is not the person that is in real life. And trying to, what I couldn't understand is how they didn't realize how that would be perceived by an actual person reading what was put on social media. Yeah, it's like, man, would you you wouldn't say that for real? Why have you mm. put it there? And it's almost like it, it doesn't. Yeah, but it's not a real thing. It's on social media. Mm. Would you say it in a job interview? Because <laughs> I guarantee you, people will look at your social media. <laughs> like when I was employing people, I wish you do a quick, quick search, look through, see, you know, just it's it's open source information, isn't it? You know, and yeah, I mean, there's the, the there's lots of stuff going on in cricket right now. I'm not much of a cricket fan, but um, there was the young England cricketer, what about six months ago? And on the day of his first test, they uh, someone had obviously been sitting on it for ages. They pulled a load of tweets out that he wrote at two in the morning when he was 18. 
um, which was whatever, how many years ago, but in this day and age, unacceptable. And I don't know if it ended his career, but it certainly ended his first test match. You know, yeah. What you put out there is there forever. Um, yeah, at the same time, though, yeah, you're right. But at the same time, though, like you said, 18 years old, two in the morning, whatever. If it's 5, 10, 15 years ago and you're blatantly not the same person, for God's sake, it goes back to the social media thing and yeah. the news thing, outrage and, and blah, 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 yeah. you know. Yeah, it, it's just, uh, there needs to be some kind of rational thinking from the employer when you look at it. You know, I, I, I constantly flap about the podcast. Yeah. Constantly flap about the podcast. My, as in me, constantly being out there, either me saying, I mean, said stuff of, of the previous episodes, or the guests haven't said stuff, and merely because I would, I would be guilty by association. Yeah. I perceive you see it all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Companies sack people. Yeah. And I'm not saying I would get sacked by, uh, by, by Inmarsat, mm. but you, you just never know. The wrong person reads the wrong thing the wrong way, and all of a sudden, someone's perceived as being racist or sexist, and yeah. in the world where it's super inclusive and equality and all that, which I'm all for, there is sometimes such knee-jerk reactions that people lose their jobs, lose lose their livelihood. Yeah. Their whole lives are turned upside down yeah. by stuff that it shouldn't happen for. One of the one of the things I probably didn't realise how stressful for it was how stressful it was for me at the time, I do in reflection. Although I did remember talking about it was I hated being that public when I was a CEO at React. I hated the fear that that would bring nearly all of the time. And it was it was another one of the reasons why I started to look at transitioning out because I just, the way society was going, the press was going, obviously I had loads of good experience with the press. I had that one really bad experience too. Um, and that was the most uncomfortable period of my life. And I was like, I'm never having this again. And I'm really lucky. Like you're, you and I are basically the same age. We didn't have social media when we were 18, 19, 20. I'm really glad about that. Really, really glad about that. Um, but we were allowed to then be 18, 19, 20. We were allowed to be idiots because... That was the time back then, you know, it was 1998, wasn't it, 1999? Um, but I hated being so public and being yeah, being a, a white male CEO of a charity, that's a target round if they, if they could find something wrong. And I just I didn't want to be up on hold anymore. I wanted to go back into doing work in the shadows quietly because <laughs> um, it it's, it's quite scary out there now, isn't it? And, you know, it would be... James Haskells is writing some stuff about it right now, and he's obviously really public, and he's sort of trying to push back against cancel culture, which ironically means he's probably going to get cancelled. <laughs> reckon? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Some good signs at the minute where people... It's not going to get as bad as sort of probably what you or I worried about, where mm. it goes, we actually... It beca it becomes... you 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 you. What you say and what you do is, is so heavily policed because you has to be so heavily policed by yourself because you just get sacked, which I thought we were going that way. But you look at things like Dave Chappelle's comedy. Do you know Dave Chappelle? No. Right, so Dave Chappelle is um, he's one of the greatest comedians of all time. He's mm. a, a black black guy. I know. And, I, I do know who you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's just released a, doc, uh, a special on Netflix. And there's jokes in there that involve transgender parts of the joke. Mm. I think there's some homosexual stuff in there. Um, there's all, you know, there's, there's racial stuff in there, mm. race-related stuff in there with the jokes. Um, and it's it came to the news because a load of Netflix employees turned around and 
they did a protest outside mm. and can't take it down, take it off Netflix. And mm. Netflix, it, the Netflix CEO, I think it was, turned around and said, no, it's like leaving it up. It's just right. sort of comedy. Yeah. But th- so things like that, he hasn't been cancelled. I mean, he's massive. I mean, he hasn't been cancelled mm. yet. Right, I'd be very surprised if he does. But I mean, the thing with that is, when you, if you wa- it's worth watching it. It's, it is genius. Right? Yeah. It, is, it is hilarious. But when you watch it, the only things that these people are protesting about, there's no way they've watched. They've no, there's no way they've watched it. Right. Because when you watch it, it's not a. Uh, it's not about slating the transgender community, the gay community, the flipping white white community. Sounds weird to say, mm. isn't it? White community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. He's actually supporting them. It's a really, cl- it's really clever. Me, me and the missus watched it again the other day, and it's so clever. The, mm. the end of it, and they haven't watched it. They've they've taken a five second. They've seen a five second thing where he's laughing at something about a transgender person or whatever, mm. and they've and they've um, they tr- they've just gone straight into outrage mode. Yeah, as if they watched the whole thing, they go, oh, I they actually they actually applaud it. So th- yeah. it's things like that. I think uh, maybe maybe we we'll right. maybe we'll be alright. I hope so. There is a bit of a backlash going against it. Isn't I there? hope we get back to a place where we can understand context. Um, because when you take things out of context, I'm not talking about race-related jokes or anything like that, just talking about anything. If you take anything out of context, it can make it completely different to what was actually said, and you can create outrage around it, and the press is really good at taking things out of context. And I hope there is a pushback against it. And I hope we can create a place again where... Because what happens when when everyone entrenches on either side of an argument, you get no healthy debate in the middle anymore, so you can't educate people anymore, you know, cause, because you can't have a debate without the fear of being called one thing or another. And I hope we get back to some kind of common sense where we can sort of discuss issues without it all be like mask wearing. <laughs> I mean, families were falling out, feuding over whether to wear a mask or not, or whether COVID was real or not, or to have a vaccine or not. You know, these aren't even the more complicated issues of like equality. These are just, just wear a mask because it might help. <laughs> you know, we don't need to start calling people out and ruining friendships and families over that. No, but I think that's that's being co- yeah I know what you mean, but it's, that's being caused by that's being caused by media and the, and the news. I think mm. there's a there is an argument to be had that says that all of this discontent and a lot of it, most of it, is being the genesis of it is coming from Rus- Russian and Chinese influence. Well, that's right. Destabilizing D- disinformation. UK, destabilizing USA. That'll be a big part of the battlefield in years to come. You know, they'll they'll be attacking social media fabric behind to start losing public interest in battles. Um, what's really interesting is being out in the UAE for a little while is there is none of this because there isn't the freedom of press there. It's quite an oppressive regime. And freedom of speech, freedom of the press is an important part of democracy when it was responsible you know, because actually it held people to account, it held government to account, institutions to account. But of course they're, they're now built around click rate and like that instant attention to get a click through sensationalist headlines. So disinformation spreads, or fake news spreads three times faster than real news, which is just awful. And But in the UAE, there is none of this screaming at each other because it's illegal. You can't, you can't, um, you can't preach and cause hate and disturbance, and it's very quiet and peaceful. It's, it's oppressive, you know, it's not, uh, it's not the freedom of speech. But it's a much nicer place to be at the moment, <laughs> you know. And and it's like, where do we go? You know, <laughs> like you walk around the UAE, it's really friendly. You know, there's no people hate screaming. There's no trolling on the internet because if you do that, then CID will be around within days to question you as to what you're up to and why you're trying to cause discontent. You don't see that over here. I mean, that's you don't see that here though. That's the picture that's painted on social media. 
and online and, and in the news is that everyone's at each other's throats all mm. the time and it's massive discontent. There is, but it's all online. Yeah, but you can't do it online in the UAE. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. You can't even do it on WhatsApp. So it just doesn't happen. Oh. Yeah, no, it's it's legit out there. You know, they are they are monitoring everything and if you go too far, if you slag off the government, you will get you will get questioned as to what you're up to. Sounds like a great way to live, Sharpie. What are you trying to say? I quite liked it. <laughs> I, I quite liked it. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. I'm reading uh, I'm reading Stalin at the minute. Right. Right. So um, Ideas of leadership. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I I so I'm trying to with everything that's going on, I'm trying to form my own thoughts and just understand things. And I don't like I don't really I don't really know what communism is, socialism is. I d I don't understand all that mm. at any level of depth. I've <clears throat> Found this book called Stalin. Reading that, I tell you what, it's brilliant. Mm. It is flipping brilliant. It, about him from a kid. Right. So late, basically early nineties, the the Kremlin released um, uh, all of the old files that had been kept under lock and key until there was like a regime change there, basically, and a lot of it was to do with Stalin. And so this guy Robert Service did a mega in depth, re mega in depth research, and then wrote the book. But I remember opening the book and thinking, hmm, I wonder if I'll get to anything in here and I'll see similarities of what's going on in this day and age. It took me about 30 pages and it's got to a part where... Uh, so he was Georgian, by the way. wasn't even Russian. Right. What a bluffer. Sneaky, yeah. sneaky Georgian <laughs> bastard. He, um, he's got to a bit where he's in his early 20s. Marxism's, you know, he's he becoming an active... A Marxist activist, if you want to call it that, in, in today's language, and they are in Georgia. They are trying to rally employees against employers through outrage and right. misinformation and getting protests organised mm. and all that. But uh, against uh, across the board to get discontent spread instead of this, uh, eventually overthrow the regime. Yeah. And that's where the point I went, oh my God. Yeah. That's what happens. That is what's happening now. Someone, what does it say? History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 yeah it's quite, because, you know, things just keep rechiming, don't they? Um, I, I read I read in what was it, Telegraph, and it was comparing America now to Germany pre Nazi, so pre pre 1940, pre 1930. And they said that you potentially have a place now in America where one third of the population would murder. The other one third, and one third might stand back and watch. Yeah, you, you're potentially at that place in America with so much tension. Yeah, Alabama, right? down down racial lines, down economic lines, down republic democratic lines. Th there's so much tension there, and there's so many guns. <laughs> A lot of guns. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that is interesting. How interesting that what pans out there. They're just a different beast, aren't they? A different beast. The way. Um, the way they can, uh, that just how different each state is from each other, and the way they 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 go about things. I mean, the COVID the COVID situation as an example. You know, yeah. some states just did nothing. Yeah, like Flo Florida, just Florida, Florida. Yeah. yeah, and then you had other states that went crazy. New York. Yeah, but it's, they've laid off seventy odd thousand nurses now, haven't they? What New York? Yeah, because okay. they, I think it's seventy odd thousand or fifty odd thousand because mm. they won't get the vaccine. Oh, right, no. And they're having to draft in National Guard to plug the gaps. Yeah. Well, I, I think we'll probably find similar things here if they try to make 
the vaccine compulsory for social care workers. There were some debates on Radio 4 about this a few weeks ago where people are saying, well, I don't want the vaccine. And they're saying, well, you might not be able to work in the social care system then. <laughs> and, you know, I, th I don't think that problem's a million miles away from our doorstep yet. It's just America's already there. I think it was on the news this morning about whether NHS workers would be mandated to have the vaccine and, and what that would or wouldn't do to nursing numbers. So I think we've got that problem still to come yet. That is a different conversation. Yeah, and it's one that I'm not educated <laughs> no. enough to have with you. You have this really like handy knack of putting me in really difficult <laughs> conversations and corners. I'm like, actually, mate, I don't know. I'm not a geopolitical expert. <laughs> um, right. Anything we haven't covered that you wanted to cover? No, mate. It's been good. How can people check out what the company's doing? Um, well, I'm still on LinkedIn. You're going to hit there. And there's a website, um, challenger, uh, challenger-ops.com. Um, but it's not going to be it's not going to be as big and public as React. Um, but we will be uh, we're just starting to pull together uh, our first teams of consultants, which is uh, which is an exciting step for us because at the moment it's been Rob and I doing the work, and now we've just got things starting to come. We start bringing some people in, and so I'll be reaching out uh, be reaching out to that React network a little bit, seeing who who fancies doing some more cool stuff in cool places. Um, so you know, watch this space on that. Are you going to pull your boots on for Forces Barbarians on the fourth of December? Fourth of December. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, President's, President's 15 versus Treasurer's 15. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that'd be good. Yeah. Uh, well, like I said, I was thinking about getting my rubber career back started again. Maybe this would be yeah. the catalyst. It's be good, mate. I'll have to be buy a, some boots. A bit, <laughs> <laughs> bit light-eyed. Yeah. Good. Awesome. Good, yeah, yeah. Sweet. Mate, mega. Mate, it's a pleasure. Yeah, mate. No worries. Awesome. Thanks. That is it. Thank you for listening to the HR Podcast. Sponsoring the podcast today, we're Combat Cigars. Combat Cigars is the first... British military veteran-owned cigar company, and it is a fucking cool one. Get onto the website combatcigars.co.uk and pick up one of the three blends. Uh, last post, the last post, you got the victory and you got the Oath of Allegiance. I had a brain fart then. And the reason I stumbled before I started listing them off is because I know that one of them is out of stock. It's just rapidly sold out. So get on, have a look. Get your cigars in. When you think about getting a cigar for any event we're doing, whatever it's going to be, military event, wedding, flipping, whatever it is you're going to go, and you think, ah, oh, it'd be good to get a cigar for that, think it'd be good to get a combat cigar for that. Also sponsoring the podcast today were the Development Society, a community of like-minded dudes who want the best for each other. They enjoy fizz. They care about others, and they want to improve themselves on a daily basis. You can be part of the DevSoc community. Go to the website devsoc.shop for the Development Society. Sign up for their Daily Waves newsletter. It's free. Um, and also, check out the shop. Go in there, have a look at the cool stuff they've got. From insanely cool products in the shop to weekly Zoom yoga sessions and other stuff you can get involved with just be, be part of the community, I highly recommend it. devsoc.shop. Also sponsoring the podcast today with the Aardvark Group who provide advanced systems for the protection and management of territories, borders, assets, and people for a global customer base. They operate all over the world in the humanitarian, critical defense, security, and commercial sectors. And they have got a shop where you can get a discount in with the discount code HHOUR. If you work in a post-conflict zone, if you work in hostile environments, if you work in a dodgy, dodgy environment or dodgy kind of job role where you need critical on the man, on the woman kit, go to the Aardvark shop you might be able to get something there for yourself for example a trauma pack trauma packs a variety of kit and equipment discount code is hhour exclusively for you hr listener and the website is aardvark.group thank you
Finally, shout out to all my patrons, legends. You can become a HR patron, get access to all of the podcasts before anyone else. Exclusive in- invites to events, uh, free shit, free giveaways every month, and access to some pretty cool little uh, communities and platforms. Patreon.com forward slash HK Podcasts. That's it. Until next time. Out. <laughs>